have seen my journey from performance to recovering from cancer. Hugh McEachran is a cancer survivor and a world-class competitive cyclist. And in this video, he tells his story of battling cancer and racing in Europe against Lance Armstrong. This video is a fantastic tale of courage and perseverance that you won't want to miss. Hang tight because you're on a wellness-driven ride. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let me tell you about our guest today. Hugh McEachran is a highly experienced health professional. He has worked with elite athletes in recreational and clinical environments and at the country's premier spinal cord and traumatic brain injury hospital. In the health club industry, Hugh has managed membership and personal training sales departments, processes relating to the customer experience and delivering quality customer service. Most recently, he has joined One Medical Seniors to provide value-based care and changing how primary care is done. He was passionate about cycling and health fitness. He spent 25 years racing bicycles worldwide, winning a 2000 National Tandem Time Trial Championship and continues to be an avid cyclist. Please help me welcome Hugh. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, nice to join you. Yes, it's so wonderful to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure. So tell us about your fascinating story, how you got started on your wellness journey. Let's start there. Uh, you know, to be honest, that with regard to health and wellness, uh, I grew up with a a doctor for a father. So I was always interested in health, always interested in medicine um, and uh, always kind of had that, um, that influence in my life. And when I went to college, I actually majored in, in pre-med, at least started pre-med. Um, and of course, at that point, I was already racing on kind of the pro-am level, racing bicycles on the pro-am level. So uh, I have to admit, like everything uh, I did, uh, some of it was with an eye towards like, well, if I take care of this aspect of my health or this, that aspect of my physiology, how will it help my performance? How will it help me go faster? How will it help me go to the Olympics or turn pro or any of those things? So um, that was kind of how I got started on it. And then I ended up, you know, through 
racing and um, trying to make a living. Uh, uh, ended up in the, the fitness industry and then uh, in uh, the medical industry. Well, I love it. Definitely helps having a doctor as a father, right? Yeah. And you really pursuing a airfield in cycling. I think that we absolutely have to maintain fitness when we're doing those physical activities. And I know you talk a lot about that now and, you know, how nutrition and mindset and all of those things play a factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, it's interesting how that kind of evolved for me. I, you know, a lot of these things started out as ideas for performance uh, parameters, you know, getting enough sleep, eating the right way, um, weighing the right weight. Uh, all of those were things that I thought that'll make me go faster. That'll help me recover better from workouts. And as I have left racing at that level behind and now I'm working first in fitness and now in medicine, um, and you know, I'm, I'm a man in my fifties now, uh, all of those things now are parameters to be a healthy person to promote functionality and longevity. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure that myself as well as the audience would love to know a little bit more on your experience and your background racing. I know that you've told me a little bit that you raced in Europe and mm -hmm. against Lance Armstrong what was that like for you? Uh, it was a big adventure and it was uncomfortable at times, but I, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was, uh, um, I started racing when I was 15. The, the local bike shop in my town was where all the kids hung out because it was also a skateboard shop. And, uh, I would look at the glossy magazines of, of, um, you know, colorful bike racing in Europe and these exotic towns. And I thought, oh man, I really want to do that. And, I started seeing some of the local bike racers come to the shop to meet for group rides and that kind of thing. And I ultimately tagged along on my bike and discovered I had some, some talent and started doing some races and started winning races right away, um, which was very promising, very exciting. And um, that was, let's see, that was the late 80s. So I was in that sort of generation, if you will, or cohort of riders that included Lance Armstrong. So my trajectory upward through the sport included him and uh that whole group of riders made the jump to europe in the early 90s and uh i went let's see i went in 1990 i went to belgium and raced on an american amateur team full-time in europe sponsored by gatorade <laughs> <laughs> and so it was you know eight americans trying to do it our own way in europe with a belgian coach and uh um the follow, and then I came back at the end of that season, went to college for a few semesters, and then went back the following spring. And the Gatorade team had folded; they had moved their money elsewhere. Um, so I ended up. Uh, I had a friend. I'm from a very rural area in New England, and um, uh, I had a friend from Maine that was also living and racing in Belgium. And I had sort of seen him around at this race or that race, and so I called him and said, "Hey, I really want to go back. What about that team that you ride on? You know, are, is there any?" any space on that team is there anything i i could be of any way i could be of value to that team and he said you know actually our, our coach saw you at a race last year um and i mentioned it and he said yeah have him come over and uh you know pay his own way over and we'll take care of the rest so i was back on a plane to belgium again in in the spring of uh 
92, I guess. And um, it was an Olympic year. So I had this idea that, you know, at that point I was racing as the, as the top level amateur you could be in the U.S. And uh, I had this idea that I would race in Europe for a few months, get tuned up, and then fly back to the U.S. for Olympic trials, do the trials, and then go back to Europe to finish the season. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, but it was a really wonderful experience. I was riding on a Belgian cycling team sponsored by a Russian car manufacturer, which is one of those weird sort of commercial arrangements. Cycling makes really strange bedfellows. Um, but I actually did end up doing two weeks as a guest rider on the Brazilian Olympic team. Uh, they were in Europe that spring tuning up for races and, and, uh, needed a guest rider for a couple of races. So I went with them, um, and then at the end of that time, uh, I came back to the U.S. Uh, I didn't no teams came knocking my door down to uh, keep going back to Europe. So I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll turn I'll finish my degree, um, turn pro here in the U.S. and race domestically. And that's what I did until I was 30. Uh, raced all over the U.S. Um, occasionally would do a guest spot, you know, at some race in Canada or El Salvador or something like that. You know, and I would try to do these these international trips when I uh, got the opportunity. Um, and then in, I think it was 2000, I was about to turn 30 and uh, I had been living this very monastic lifestyle, you know, we're just eating, training, sleeping, mm -hmm. um, racing, traveling two or three weeks out of every month, hotels, restaurants, the whole shebang. And at that age, you know, when you're 30 in those days, we had a saying, if you haven't made it by the age of 30, you're not going to. And my goal had always been, I think, I had always told myself, I will do this until I've gotten everything out of myself I can. When I feel like I'm not improving, when I feel like there's nothing left, I'll walk away from the sport happy. So uh, I did. Uh, I, I love went to that National mentality. Camping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I figured, you know, having come up with a degree in physiology and all that, I had this idea, and I still do to some extent, but I had this idea that ultimately you'll reach your genetic physiological max. You know, you'll reach this, this point at which you simply do not have the talent or the genetic gifts to, to go beyond. Um, I've since learned a little better about that, but at the time that was my belief. I had this very mechanistic belief of like, okay, it's, it will end when I reach the, the end of my talent and either that'll be good enough or it won't, but either way, I'll give it my best efforts. So I went to national championships that year it was also the Olympic trials week, um, and uh, I won a national championship on the tandem with my my identical twin brother, actually. Um, and we had I had been you know I was 30 years old at that time. I had been trying since I was 30 to win a national championship in any event, any event, mm -hmm. so I could get that stars and stripes jersey that they give you on the podium. And um, and I I literally decided like okay this this is it I I'm doing everything I can. I'm, I'm as light as I can be. I'm as strong as I can be. Um, I've got the technology on the bike. I'm doing all the things, but I'm not getting faster. Uh, I was winning races in Colorado, winning races in the regional West, but then I would go out to the national scene, the bigger national level races and just the, wouldn't perform well enough. And so I thought, all right, well, I think I've seen everything I had to give. I, I want to move on to other things. I, I want to go to medical school. So I, I packed it in with racing, got my Stars and Stripes uniform or Stars and Stripes jersey, raced with it exactly once, and then hung it up in the closet and <laughs> have moved on to, to the real world. Yeah, well, you obtained the goal. Yes, yeah. It was very much a, 
it, I got to admit, I actually walked away from at that time. I walked away from racing feeling like um, I hadn't, it, it was a failure or that I hadn't achieved what I wanted to. But now looking back on it, it was, it was going from strength to strength. I achieved ABC racing in Europe, national championship jerseys, racing now, you know, all over the U.S. The experiences, the friendships, the the contact, yeah. the contacts, all of it now I look back on is a, is a real success. Ah, oh, I like that. Uh, part of me wanted to go back to the Belgium coach because you mentioned that and what a difference that was than working with, you know, the U.S. coaches. If you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that? I'm curious. Yeah, so... Um, both years I was racing in Europe, we, I was under a Belgian coach. Um, so the first year Gatorade had, uh, had contracted this coach to look after the team. This was in the Southern part of Belgium in Wallony where they speak French. Um, and he was vehement, you know, he's, he was very steeped in European racing, had a lot of contacts in, in racing. He's kind of the guy to know. Um, he's gone on to work with Tour de France teams and that kind of thing, but, he felt like if we were going to live and make it in Europe, we had to do things a certain way. And so we were eight Americans trying to, you know, all in our 20s, uh, trying to do things the American way. And he was trying to inject just enough old school Euro bike racing into it to, to kind of help us adapt. Um, one of his favorite things to do was to only speak French to us. Um, <laughs> so we could speak whatever language we wanted to him, but we were only getting French out of him. Um, and, uh, wow. uh, he would speak English if it was really, really important. He could speak English. He could speak five languages like most Europeans. Um, I had taken a boatload of French in school, so I, I actually was able to speak fairly well with him. Um, and then I went back the following year and lived in the North of Belgium where they speak Flemish, a uh, dialect of Dutch. Um, and I don't speak any Flemish or Dutch. Um, and my coach there very much the same way though. He felt like um things should be done a certain way and in belgium it's a very sort of old school thought um uh, process or paradigm around racing and uh so you you train this way you eat this way uh we had this expression that there was what we called bell logic or belgian logic and it was things like you can't sleep with the air conditioning on in your hotel room because it will make you sick you can't get in the hot tub uh at your hotel or anywhere because it'll make your legs heavy with water. Um, so it was sort of, you know, <laughs> wow. the training information was fantastic. Like what I learned about training in those times and being, Belgium is a gritty, hard place to race bicycles. And in the U.S., bicycle racing is a hobby. We have a tiered category system um, where you can race at a low level as a hobby. In Belgium, cycling is not a hobby. You either make it, or you don't, and you go back to the factory where your father works. And it's a very bicycle, mm -hmm. pro bike racing in Europe is a very blue collar sport, even now, maybe less so now, but, but at the time, especially so. And so um, they really had this approach, like you have to do just an unbelievable uh, amount of miles and you have to do ABC kinds of intensity and, uh, you know, never touch a, a dumbbell or a barbell with your upper body because it, you have to carry all that muscle uphill and things like that. So it was, it was an interesting approach. And then I came back and I finished my degree in physiology and was able to kind of alloy everything I learned in Belgium with everything I learned about modern physiology. 
Um, and then when I graduated, I was able to turn pro in this country and have far more success than I ever did in Europe. Well, yeah, you sound, it sounds like you learned so much and yeah. thank you very much for describing that and painting that picture for me, uh, from my curiosity. I, I haven't traveled as much out of the U S so that's wonderful to understand the different cultural values and understanding of what that was like for you. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go into our first commercial. And when we come back, I want to hit on mindset a little bit because you spoke of the effects of how you felt and thought back then and your achievements, and it wasn't good enough and how you came about thinking in a different way in your adulthood when mm -hmm. we come back. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi, I'm April Hove, the Managing Director of the Fort Worth, Texas chapter of eWomen Network. I'm so excited that you stopped to watch this video. I've got good news for you. You have just discovered an international network of women entrepreneurs who are committed to helping you achieve, succeed, and prosper. We are on a mission to help 1 million women entrepreneurs each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. Here at eWomen Network, we have a complete success system that supports you every step of the way in building and growing your business. You being here right now is no accident. We're supposed to know about you. We want to meet you to find out how we can help you as well as learn about what you have to offer. With over 500,000 women connecting through 118 chapters across the US, Canada, Australia, and the UK, you are never alone. If this is resonating with you, please go to eWomenNetwork.com slash Fort Worth. Notice too, my contact information. I invite you to reach out to me and check out our upcoming in-person and online events. I am really looking forward to introducing you to our community. So I would love to know, Hugh, your thoughts on, you know, how you were thinking when you were younger and how, you know, just being the achiever that you were and chasing after that success and how it wasn't quite enough and how you think now. Well, I fell into the same trap that I think a lot of athletes do. And maybe even I don't think of my I'm not really a type A go, 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 uh, go get her personality. And I never have been. That said, there was a time in my life where it was about achievement. So 
I fell into the same trap that a lot of achievers will call them, and especially athletes fall into where you are your own final product as an athlete. And the goal is either win the race, it's binary, right? You win or you don't win. And if you don't win, then you didn't do the right things. You didn't train hard enough. You didn't train long enough. You didn't lose enough weight. Um, and so you can fall into this mindset of even if you're, let's say you're consistently finishing in the top five. Like I actually, I race collegiate, um, which is sort of uh, collegiate racing in the U.S. is definitely on its way up. Um, and I raced in, for a school in Colorado, which was routinely in the top five schools in the country with regard to bike racing. And I actually won the conference one year, not because I necessarily won every race. I won a few races, but I performed consistently well in the races. But in general, as a high level athlete, if you're not winning, you're losing. And so everything, um, sort of revolves around like, what can I do to go faster? What can extra 1%? Do I need to lose another kilo of weights? Do I need to ride another hour per week? Um, could the technology on the bike be optimized somehow? Um, and so I definitely fell into that trap. And, and a lot of athletes do this where they sort of define their self-worth by their success. Um, and the older I got into the sport, and the more I started to sort of open up the idea of a world outside of bike racing, the more I began to realize, um, oh, you know, my self-worth might be related to more than just my performances as an athlete. Mm. You know, I, I agree with you and how easy it is to fall into that trap and the societal standards or what they say you know, you're capable of, like you talked about earlier, how they kind of put you in this box of your body's only going to be able to perform at max level, you know, mm -hmm. at this point, and then that's it. And the kind of impact that that has on anybody for any reason, I mean, you could go not only just in the, the sports and the athlete arena, but for anyone in general, societal standards and putting people in this box. And so tell me a little bit more about how you learned that, or you felt that that was not actually the case. Well, it was a, a few things kind of coming together all at once. One of them was when I arrived in Colorado in the early nineties, having spent a couple of years racing in Europe and, and sort of bouncing around colleges a little bit living this sort of nomadic lifestyle, I was craving something. I, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was I was craving. And, and when I moved to Colorado, my twin brother lived there. They had a, at the time a vibrant, vibrant cycling community of a lot of really high level athletes. Mm. Um, and it turned out the thing I was craving was community. Mm. Um, and as I became a member of that community, you know, now I'm in my mid twenties. So it's starting to grow up. Yeah. Right. Um, and as I got older, as all, all of us got older, some of us migrated out of the sport before others got married, had families, um, and became adults. <laughs> um, we, since we were kind of growing up together, it turned out that, you know, as I was starting to look at the, my cycling career, 
yes, maybe I was going to leave racing my bike, but I still had all these wonderful friends mm-hmm. and their families. They were interested in new things, and I was interested in new things. And I just sort of emerged from like, okay, yeah, bike racing is this thing I do, and I'm pretty darn good at it. And they were really good at it, and I enjoyed traveling with those people, but I enjoyed going to have a coffee with that person, you know, or, uh, you know, it, I think at the time I was involved long term with a, a young lady who was getting her PhD in engineering and she was going to join the, you know, the workforce when she finished and she raced bikes, but not at a very high level. She wasn't, it wasn't her whole life. Um, and so she and I wanted to travel and I began to realize the value of travel, not as an athlete, you know, where I wasn't looking at another skinny mm-hmm. guy in spandex for three hours on a <laughs> bumpy cobbled road in the rain. You know, it's like I remember we went to Fort Lauderdale, laid on the beach for a few hours together one day. And it's like, okay, wow. Yeah. Experiences. Life has experiences and they aren't tied to how you perform. You just are in the moment. You're in the experience at the time. Mm -hmm. It was the the piling of those experiences. Oh, that is really cool. I I love that. Um, So I heard community and really being in the moment mm-hmm. and exploring and not just for, you know, for the, for the chase of the, you know, how you're performing. Mm-hmm. So those are really great ideas for anyone to really you know, live life to the fullest. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we're going to go to another commercial. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about how do you think nutrition mindset and fitness work together to create a healthy and fit lifestyle. So let's combine the three of them and we'll go from there. All right. With key ingredients supported by over 80 clinical trials, the exclusive formulation of the Bella Grace Collagen Elixir is changing lives everywhere. Ingesting collagen peptides alone is not very helpful. This is where most collagen products fall short and where Bella Grace changes everything. Unlike other collagen products, the Bella Grace Collagen Elixir controls the gene switches which activate collagen creation and disables the enzymes that break down the matrix. Bella Grace Collagen Elixir contains Verisol, the world's best and most clinically studied form of collagen. These elite collagen peptides influence the skin's collagen metabolism directly from the inside. Nature's most powerful antioxidant. 6,000 times more potent than vitamin C. Astereal astaxanthin prevents the activation of gene switches that drive inflammation and activates the gene switch responsible for cellular repair and longevity, forming bridges across cell membranes, protecting them from free radical attack. Amazonian cat's claw suppresses the enzymes that degrade collagen and our skin matrix caused by oxidants and inflammation. It simply turns the switch off. The world's most studied collagen, plus activating the genes that make collagen, plus switching off the genes that break down collagen, has resulted in something the world has never 
experienced. Elixir. Start your 30-day Bella Grace challenge today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be. But we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. So uh, you've talked a lot, Hugh, about uh, nutrition mindset and fitness and how they work together. And I want to kind of join in also, you've had this incredible experience as an athlete and you're traveling through the world and learning these different cultures while this uh, competition aspect of you is really stemming your, um, your life. Like it's, it's the forefront of your life in your younger years. And then you move a little further and you've had some complications come up where disease takes place in life. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. We don't have to jump in yet, but how has that integrated your idea of combining nutrition mindset and fitness? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, <clears throat> so obviously as an athlete, you know, nutrition mindset, fitness, they're very, very important. Um, nutrition for me was very important and remains very important. But at the time it was all about like, eat the right things so you're fueled enough, but not so much that you um, are carrying extra weight. So it was, in those days I had single digit body fat and worked very hard, um, sometimes in some unhealthy ways to get down there, but not, you couldn't go whole hog on that because you also had to be well enough fueled to do a three hour, four hour, hundred mile bike race. even after I left racing, nutrition continued to be very important to me because I was working in the fitness industry, um, but also because, you know, I'm, I wanted to continue to be a fit person and I didn't want to, uh, I think a lot of people, athletes and the general public alike, you know, they, they, we, I left to sport, but other people leave school, maybe where they're college, where they're playing sports, but they continue to eat like they're playing sports even when they're not. And that makes for the kinds of um, issues we're seeing with Americans' health and fitness right now um, is this, the the nutrition isn't quite, I think, where it should be. And that's all, I could wax philosophical. Uh, There's a balance. Philosophical. Yeah. Right? There's a balance depending on right. like, how you're living your life. So yes, of exactly. course you're going to have exactly. to be, fuel your body in a certain way when you're 
activating it, you know, so hard and then, you know, giving it a different type of nutrition, you're not. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And then when I became a cancer patient, nutrition became uh, very, very important to me. Uh, again, as a, um, we'll call it an adjunct treatment to chemotherapy. Um, fitness too was always something I really enjoyed just from the aspect of being active. You know, I left the sport, continued to like to ride my bike, but opened myself up after that too. I also like to lift weights. I like to go hiking. Uh, I like to do uh, cross-country skiing. You know, that was actually my second love behind racing bicycles. And um, once I was able to sort of not lean quite so hard on like, oh, I got to get X amount of bike time in, you know, I, I could go do the other things I like to do. And I think fitness doesn't have to be, a lot of times we think of fitness as like, you well, we got to train hard and we got to train a lot, especially in America, right? If one is good, three is better. Um, but fitness, you don't, and this is what I relay to my senior patients now, you don't have to be killing yourself, you know, to be a fit person. If you eat right more often than not, if you get a little bit of activity, then you're really doing a lot for yourself in terms of your fitness, yeah. which I now, to me, fitness entails functionality, longevity, yeah. and not just lifespan, but health span. What portion of your lifespan are you healthy and functional? You know, well, so it's more enjoyable long, that way, right? <laughs> right. You don't have a long period of morbidity at or towards the end of your life. And then yeah. the mindset, obviously, as an athlete, it's win at all costs. It's, again, it's sort of binary. But as you come out of that, or as I came out of that, the mindset for me really became um, what I now, what I refer to when I own fitness businesses and what I continue to refer to. Uh, my mindset around nutrition, exercise, sleep, all of those things is what is the minimal effective dose to send the message to your body, make the adaptation to be fit without becoming maniacal or obsessed with. It. So, you know, what is the minimum effective dose of exercise so I can send the message to my muscles and my heart to be healthy while not spending hours in the gym, you know, and I, this is, I have a, uh, a life outside of the gym. So thing with nutrition, you know, I think a lot of times, and I really see this a lot in my work now. And I saw it, of course, in fitness, you know, people that want to eat right, they know what they're supposed to do. They start doing it. They blow a meal, they blow two meals and they think, oh, I'm terrible at this. I'm just not going to do it. Um, when yeah. instead of thinking, well, what's the minimum effective dose? Like, can I have a cheat meal per week? Can I have an entire cheat day per week? And so that that mindset of how much of this do I need to be really, really um, on point about and how much can I sort of have a psychological blow-off valve uh, and, and let it go a little bit, let my hair down a little bit, kick my heels up a little bit. Yeah, I like your term, the, the minimum effective dose. Yes, yes. I like that. I, I think, um, you know, if we're speaking about longevity, I think we all know people who are like, oh, I can't, I can't do squats in the gym because I have a, I hurt my knee or I can't do deadlifts because I hurt my back or I can't do this or that because I hurt my shoulder. And so we all are going to have those constraints. Um, we're humans. The parts wear down over time. 
I think as a species, we're living longer than the mechanism was designed to live, um, which means we're all going to accumulate a little bit of wear and tear over time and have those constraints. So you have to think like, how can I work within those constraints? And that's where this sort of minimum effective dose idea comes in. It's like, how much is enough without absolutely burying myself? Yeah, and exactly. And to, to keep going and do something, the minimum, mm -hmm. what is yeah. that? It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what's the one thing mm -hmm. that we can do? Yeah. And be gentle. I think there's an element of being gentle or compassionate with yourself in it, right? Like you, if you know, you don't have to destroy yourself in the gym or you don't have to subsist on, you know, for hyperbole sake, you know, on tofu and water for you, um, then you can be a little gentle with yourself. And, and yeah. I think that is really key to sort of having a healthy mind, just constantly berating yourself um, mentally, emotionally over time. You're just, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be a happy person. Yeah. Do you feel like you learned that lesson of, of being more gentle with yourself and compassionate with yourself during your, your trials with disease and cancer and um, diabetes? Is that correct? So uh, with definitely with cancer, I uh, don't have diabetes myself, but a massive populate portion of my patients. So I only see okay. people who are 65 and older. Um, and a, a huge, huge percentage of them have type two diabetes, mm. you know, so-called adult onset diabetes. So you're um, a specialist in this realm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, that that's who walks through my door. So I've yeah, had to learn a lot about that, but yeah, I mean, when I became a cancer patient myself, um, learning to be gentle with myself was at first I went into it with the athlete mentality. You know, I'm going to do everything perfect and, you know, and we're going to beat this thing. And, and, uh, and I certainly did as much of that as I could, you know, I, I read up on the best ways to eat and, you know, it turns out the ketogenic diet is, is both, uh, tumors of their fueling, but also is, uh, protective against the kinds of damage that chemo does. So mm. I ate a, a ketogenic diet, um, which at the time I was eating a, a pretty strict paleo diet anyway. So it was a very short jump to go from paleo to keto. Mm -hmm. um, and the exercise, I think this is where I really had to learn to be gentle with myself was the exercise. Cause at the time, you know, I, I was running my own fitness business. I kind of had as much time as I wanted to exercise. So I was lifting as often as I wanted. I was going for long bike rides as often as I wanted. And, and, um, I had built some flexibility into my business to be able to handle those things, take kids to doctor's appointments and swim lessons. My wife was traveling a lot for work at the time. And so when I became a cancer patient and expected to, okay, I'm going to go do chemo and then I'm going to get on my bike the following day, or I'm going to go in the gym the following day. And that, that just wasn't happening. And I had to sort of learn to be gentle with myself, learn to take what my body was going to give me for that day and not see it as, as, a, as an indictment. I'm not fit enough. I'm not strong enough. Or, um, well, if I can't do that, I can't do any of it. You know, it's just like, no, this is where your body is today. And it may or may not be there tomorrow. So take what your body's going to give you today. The thing that you need to do more than any other thing right now is rest. Or, mm. you know, your body's telling you less today, not more. Um, and then now that I work with seniors, uh, this is my, like, huge message to them, you know, is 
be gentle with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you are absolutely able to serve them at such a, a high level. And, um, you know, through all of the lessons that you've learned and the things that you have gone through in order to, you know, the experiences have created this wisdom within you. And um, I want to go back just a tiny bit. How did it make you feel, you know, when you, when you were diagnosed with cancer and you had been living this life of such extreme accomplishments? Yeah, I, so at the time that I was diagnosed, I, like I said, I was running this little boutique personal training business, um, really having a good time with it, working about as much as I wanted. And because of that, I was like, I had stopped racing on the master's level, stopped racing at all when my kids were born, because who has time for that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> this <is> true. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but the kids were a little older and, and, you know, we had a good support system in place and I had some flexibility with work. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to racing masters. So I was actually, my training load was kind of high. Uh, I was starting to diet back down to what I felt like was a reasonable weight and body fat or body composition for a guy in his forties to race on the recreational level. And, um, you know, and then I started dabbling and doing a few races and the body was just not performing. There was something mm. now I realized there was something wrong, but at the time, uh, I, my wife and I both were like, well, I mean, come on, you're a guy in your forties with two little kids. You're tired. You know, you just, you're not recovering well from work. Um, I, you know, I, because I had wanted to get to what I felt was a more appropriate weight for, for being an athlete. I was eating really well. Um, so when the came and it came on the back of, I did some routine blood work. Um, I never actually felt like sick. Um, I did some routine blood work because that's what mature grownups do. Uh, and it came yeah. back looking a little wonky and the kids were sick. I had been sick, you know, stomach bug or whatever. And the doctor said, well, you know, you've been sick. It could make your blood work look like this. Let's do it again in a month sure. when you're not sick. And sure enough, it looked the same. And, and that started the sort of all the events that led to the diagnosis. And with the diagnosis, there was a lot of, I think what everybody does, you know, how did this happen? I'm so healthy. I, I did everything right. Yeah. So yeah. I had a little bit that sense of betrayal, like of with my body, you know, and uh, I think we all get that, whether it's because of you reach that stage in your life where you are physically less able, you know, now that I work with seniors, I'm definitely seeing a lot of this. And for me, it came in my forties and it just was, you know, what happened? How did this happen? I did everything right. I've, I, I get eight hours of sleep, you know, at least the, to get back to that with the kids having reached a certain age they were sleeping um and uh you know we eat really well and and, and at the at the end of the day it was one of these things that could not have been prevented or predicted um and i just had to sort of accept that that's what was happening and and now i had to move forward with what i was going to do next yeah and uh the way that you describe how you felt this sense of betrayal when you have been living so exceptionally, you, you're doing everything right. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good word and choice of explaining what you felt, this betrayal of how could this be? 
And so um, I want to, speaking of, I, I want to bring in some pictures, the photo album, <laughs> because I would love for our audience to see some of the stuff. So we're going into, in the beginning, this is you racing. Tell yeah. me so, about this. So this is me in my, let's see, this is me in my 30s. Um, so I had stopped racing at a really high level at this point. Um, and uh, this is in, this is in Fort Collins, Colorado. I raced on a really great little master's team. Um, master's racing, by the way, in the U.S. is like pro racing in the U.S., just shorter and everybody goes back to work on monday um but this was <laughs> in a rainy race yeah this was in a rainy race in fort collins i think i went top five top ten here um i learned a lot about racing in the rain when i lived in belgium so i was like giddy up it's raining <laughs> mm -hmm. rabbit in the briar patch i i really had a lot of fun on that team oh colorado's home to me so i enjoy it yeah all right yeah, this is this is a little training race i did somewhere in middle america I couldn't even tell you where it was at a public works department, thus the giant tank of whatever that is behind me um, and no team uniform. Um, but uh, this was racing for fun. This was a fun race. And, and for me, once I left racing at the high level and released that, that need to, that maniacal need to perform, mm -hmm. I was able to do stuff like this where it was like, hey, let's go out with you know, 30 other guys and go really fast and beat each other up and then get a beer after yeah, and you had, you know, that sense of community and you're doing yes. it because you enjoy it. And that sounds like it's my kind of style. I love that. And look yeah. at this beautiful family. Here's your yes, boys. So, so speaking of community, I think community is one of those things we need to be a healthy human. Um, literally, I think it ranks up there with like sleep, food, exercise, all of this. We are social animals. So this yeah. is actually at a neighbor's wedding last fall. Um, and uh, we, when we moved to Arizona three years ago, uh, within months of moving here, the world shut down uh, through the pandemic. We never really got to know our neighbors. So as now we're starting to come out of all that, we're getting to know our neighbors. And these neighbors invited us to their wedding last fall. It was a wonderful affair. You can see how happy the whole family looked. Yeah. Good Isn't that wonderful? I... I get so excited to be able to really meet my neighbors and create mm -hmm. that, that community. That's it's a really good thing. And so now we're, we're moving into, this is your experience with chemo. Yes. Yeah. So I think this picture pretty well speaks for itself. <laughs> you know, you can see on my face, my face is drawn. I have bags under my eyes. Um, I don't know, you look uh, pretty, pretty happy to me, Hugh. Well, yeah, I'm glad you think so. I, maybe I'm just remembering how I felt in this picture. Um, but yeah, so I, when I did chemo, I would go for three days on, um, and then I would have two weeks off, and then I'd go for three days back. So, uh, it, so it would be three days of sitting there getting chemo. Uh, it would take hours and hours in that chair. Mm -hmm. You can see the big headphones on. Those are my cancer headphones. My, yeah. my mother-in-law is a survivor, and she got those for me so and she's like okay i'm getting these for you so that you don't listen to everybody's horror stories around you um oh. so anyway uh yes that's a picture of me uh during one of the chemo sessions uh you know i think maybe halfway through the the course uh, i was i did chemo for like five months uh, on that one week on two weeks off basis 
And uh, they were long, long, arduous days. And usually at the end of that week, I was on my hands and knees for a day or two and then would start to recover and just do it all again two weeks later. You know, I, I, I want to say something that, you know, it, you do have a smile on your face. And I know that this was one of the most difficult times of life. And what it tells me is that you have this general, um, you know, positive sense about you and meeting life. And I feel like that's a great importance for people who are survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's that going back to that mindset of, you know, thinking of what are the positive things that are happening? What can I be grateful for? Guess what? I'm grateful for these headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember I had a really positive team around me. You know, my wife went with me when, if she was in town, uh, again, she was traveling a lot during this time. Uh, she would come to, to chemo with me. Uh, when she was not in town, her mother would fly in from Arizona Aww. to look after the kids and me. Uh, so either she or her mother took this picture. And yeah, I, you know, I, I agree. I think it's very important to be positive. Um, in And we hear about this all the time. I think they now there's research around this, that, that yeah. survivors, cancer patients with those who have a positive outlook, outlook tend to have more successful outcomes than those who don't. Um, and so for me, it was very important when going to uh, chemo to have that, you know, I would march into chemo, greet my team who I knew very well, you know, and hey, good to see you. Let's get this thing going. Let's do it. Um, and and instead of walking in like a, I was headed to the executioner. Oh, yeah. Tell me about this picture. So I my picture one day when that's my oncologist uh, checking me out. He was a wonderful, wonderful man that saved my life. And mm. um, he uh, this was him examining me. And I just I've always been I've always loved this because I feel like it looks it's very gentle and he's laying hands on me and caring for me and the sun is shining on my face and I just feel like it looks very peaceful and, and caring yeah. and I felt cared for. So I've always really liked this picture. So I wanted to include it for that reason. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I, I see that definitely. And I love the way that the light is shining. I agree with you. It does look very peaceful and almost like there's this heavenly light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I get a little misty when I see this picture actually. Oh, all right. So and... this picture is maybe one of the worst moments uh, of that entire process. So I had and, one... hey, I have to stop you again, Hugh, you yep. have a smile. Smiling. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so this was before chemo started. This is the day I went in to get my port. You can see it peeking out from under the gown. I had just put it in. Um, and my wife and I were, uh, so when you get a port implanted, they cut a hole in your skin and they stick this thing under and then they thread it into the, to this major artery behind your collarbone mm. because you're working in such close proximity to the lung. There is a very small, but real chance of some damage to the lung. And unfortunately I won the lottery on this. It's a 1% complication rate. They nick my lung and it collapsed. So I woke up in pain 
and barely able to breathe. And this is my wife and I started smiling at the farce of it, you know, that, that of course, of course it was me, you know, of course I won the lottery on this. And, you know, and this was what I was waiting for an ambulance to take me to the trauma center at a local hospital. Um, and so we just had to laugh at ourselves because if you don't, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's why we're smiling in this picture. Uh, this was a tough, tough, it was a tough day on the start of a tough few days. Um, but we had each other. The kids were well taken care of. Um, my brother flew in from Colorado actually to look after the kids. And um, uh, ultimately, we got through it. Oh, that that is so cool. I, you know, and he, it happened, had to happen to you because you were strong enough to take it, man. That's yeah. just so cool. And and your wife and you look like such a, a powerhouse together, you know, and being able to laugh at the things because you're correct. What else are you going to do? Right. You know, right, I mean, right. it, it's just not, it, it's not enjoyable otherwise. So, yeah. Uh, so this was actually last week. Oh, in, wow. Uh, yeah, this was <laughs> cool. last week in Hawaii. So we just got back from Hawaii. Um, we put my older boy, the bigger of the two boys there, uh, in a surf lesson um, in a weird uh, set of coincidences. Um, one of his swim teammates from here in Arizona was on the island on, during the same week we were. That little girl's parents are not water people, but they had put her in a surf lesson. And when they found out we were going to be here, they really wanted my son to do the lesson with her so that she had a friend there, if at least she couldn't have her parents there. And then we showed up and, and the instructor said, uh, hey, dad, you want to you want to take a surf lesson? How about you, little man, to the other boy? And I'm game all the time. You throw a physical challenge at me. I will try it. Yeah. Um, so I was like, giddy up. Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's do a surf lesson. So um, we all ended up having a really fun morning together, taking surfing lessons, got up surf few waves uh, on what the instructors called the paddle that massive surfboard behind me. And uh, it was a really fun morning. Uh, you can see there, um, I'm 51, and that is about the fittest I have uh, ever been uh, since I was racing in my late 20s. Wow. Wow. I This, this is why I, I wanted to end with that picture, because I think it's just such a, a beautiful conclusion when coming out of the storm. You know, mm -hmm. there's light at the end of the tunnel. You, you're very healthy coming from that experience. You're with your family. You have community. You're enjoying life. You're having fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've often thought about writing a book because I've, I have lived a big life in many ways. I mean, uh, you know, I have all the mundane stuff everybody else does, the jobs, the, the diapers, the vacuuming, all, you know, taxes, all those things. Um, but I've also lived a big life. I've traveled to a lot of places. I've had a lot of experiences, not necessarily unique experiences, but they were unique to me and they were powerful to me. And I have often wondered, like, how would you end that book? Like, at what point do you sail off into the sunset? Mm. You know, is that, is that the moment? Right. Uh, you know, and how do you describe that? Is that where you end the book? And, um, so I have put a lot of thought into that and have always sort of thought like, well, if the point of the, the story you're telling is to ride off into the sunset, so to speak, I'm just going to keep harping on that, that metaphor. Um, when is that, you know, yeah. because your life, you know, you're always riding off into the 
sunset. It's never like today's the day. The interesting story is not interesting from here on out, but because that's not true. Yeah. So I think you just convinced yourself to write a book, Hugh. <laughs> yeah. I have started and stopped so many times. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool that you even started. You know, we're uh, we're going to go to our last commercial. And when we come back, I want to talk some more about what is next. Hello, everyone. I am Kim. Hello, everyone. I am Kim Jacobs, the host of The Kim Jacobs Show, and you all know who's right here with me, Dr. Les Brown. How are you, Dr. Brown? I'm blessed and highly favored. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the time you want to give yourself a competitive edge. If you got a message, you have some knowledge or experience, a story, or if you want to do something adventurous and exciting with your life that can increase your credibility, expose you to millions of people, I am encouraging you to have your own talk show. I used to have a talk show. That one talk show catapulted me to another level. Now there are more people watching the internet, as you are aware, than television. Yes. Come on, somebody. That's right. Dr. Kim Jacobs, she trained people on how to have their own talk show. She will train you how to do that. And now with me working, partnering with her, now you have the combination of an audience, expansive audience. We have over 4 million people in all of our platforms and the coaching you need to grow your business, to grow your multi-level marketing organization, to draw more attention to yourself in this noisy economy. Go ahead, Kim. So in the training that I do, Les, I actually do a six-week training. It's one hour per week. And each week I meet with the individuals one-on-one. -on -one. We go through and we talk about all of the things that's necessary for a show to become a reality. We go from how to actually identify your focus area what's going to be your ideal customer that's going to be tuning in. We'll talk about how to get guests, how to get sponsorship, how to go about getting your lighting, your branding and your banners and everything that you need to know. And guess what, Les? They right. own their own content at the end of the day. And that's exciting. Now, if you're ready to, to, to create a shift in your business and in your life and increase your cash flow, I want you to go to KimJacobsConsulting.com. It's right there on the screen. KimJacobsConsulting.com. You know, people say opportunity knocks on every door. Right. No. Opportunity stands by silently waiting for you to recognize it. So I want you to recognize that this is a time for you. This is an incredible time to have your own talk show. Ability. Yes. And by being exposed to people on a regular basis, it allows you to strategically begin to impact and attract your audience. She can take you in a place in yourself that you can't go by yourself. So go to KimJacobsConsulting.com. That's KimJacobsConsulting.com. Did I say KimJacobsConsulting.com? Yes, you did. Very good. Make sure you go there and sign up for the coaching. And we're looking forward to working with you. You have something special. You have greatness within you. That's my story, and that's Kim's story, and we're sticking to it. Bye for now. Bye-bye.
So I want to talk a little bit more about what is next for you. Cause I know uh, that you are interested in writing a book and I, you know <laughs> what? I also want to bring in a couple of the comments that we had. Uh, Manly Chavez said, awesome. I think this was during the times that we were going over for the pictures. I agree. He looks happy considering what he was contending. That's the winning attitude and spirit that heals. <laughs> He also said that I think that's his superpower, smiling during adversity. That's a pretty you cool know, comment. I often say that uh, somebody um, that I worked with the other day said, Hugh, you are like never stressed about anything, you know? And I often say that um, in because of uh, going through kind of up the levels of bike racing like I did. Bike racing at the high level is like a chess game played at max heart rate while going 35 miles an hour. Um, and it can be the most stressful thing you can imagine. And so uh, when you leave the sport, you know, everything else seems kind of in slow motion. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to do five hour training rides. You don't have to have your heart rate maxed out all the time. Um, so uh, the smiling, a, a lot of that came from my experience as an athlete. You know, like I, I think I said right at the beginning, it was a very uncomfortable experience in a lot of ways, um, the deprivations of the travel and that kind of thing. And, and I, I think I came out of it with that sort of ability to like smile through some of the hard stuff um, because the hard stuff is often how you get to the good stuff. I think that, you know, you have definitely experienced a lot of highs and lows mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is something really, when you learn how to navigate that, that is a skill. Absolutely. I, I experienced that a lot with law enforcement and we were taught that on, mm -hmm. you know, how we, I don't know if they taught us. I had to research a little bit more myself and experience it more, but they told us that that's what we were going to be experiencing. These extreme mm -hmm. highs, you know, you're running code, lights and sirens, and these extreme lows, this downtime mm -hmm. where there's no oh. excitement. And like you explained, it's, you know, life seems a little dull when <laughs> you're not racing fast. And, you know, I love how you described it, you know, playing chess all at the same time, because it's not. It, there's so much mental that goes along with it. It's not just the physical. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of next for me, uh, I have been while going through chemo, uh, a, an oncologist friend of mine mentioned more than once that he felt that my story was inspiring and he'd like to sit me down in front of groups of his patients. Um, obviously I have a heart for that. Um, and for those you know, I feel I feel now a part of that community, a part of the cancer community. So I've looked into volunteering at the, the hospital where I go for my ongoing uh, checkups and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm really fortunate to work for the company that I work for. Um, I went back to healthcare from fitness after the the cancer experience because I wanted to have more of an impact on people who were potentially at the worst moment of their lives. You know, when I worked at Craig Hospital, um, these were people who had been 
been through a major health care or major health trauma or scare. Um, and I wanted to be there for them and, and hold them and hold space for them. Um, because I felt like I could be uniquely empathetic to that experience. And, yeah. and so I, that led me to where I am now, where I'm really able to be in front of a, you know, five, six, eight patients a day, um, where I can, in, you know, I'm talking into people about how to manage their diabetes and talking to people about this is cancer and this is going to be hard, but we're going to get you through it. And, and yeah. so I really am enjoying what I'm doing there. And I'm looking at trying to get, um, more into more of kind of a leadership position in my company. Um, so which I'm loath to leave patient care to not be patient facing, but at the same time, um, I want to try to have some influence over the entire organization. Um, so I can like spread the love, spread, spread the empathy. <laughs> well, you're absolutely bringing knowledge and hope and inspiration. And I think the combination of all of that is a power force. So beautiful what you're doing. And it looks like you're wearing the, the shirt, the logo of your current yeah. company. Yeah. 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 Um, and then of course, you know, from a what's next standpoint, I have two little boys that, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. into uh, manhood and, and adolescence and all of those things. And I, That's you know, I have a wonderful, time, right? <laughs> I have a, that now that the kids are a little older, we're all, you know, we can take trips like to Hawaii to surf or whatever. Yeah, um, so I'm looking forward to a lot more than that. And, um, you know, I every now and then I check in on my blog and write little stories about what's going on in my life now or some funny if a funny or interesting race experience comes to me, I'll, I'll write down that memory. Uh, so yeah, you know, on, on my blog, which I see is on the bottom of the screen. Absolutely. I want to let our audience know how to contact you. And also that it's going to be in the description. So don't worry if you don't have a pen and paper or you're our listening audience. And so all of the information for our guests is always in the description of the video. So check it out. Check Hugh out. I know he has some amazing content, especially if you've gone back and forth where you've started writing a book and then you stop, you know, I bet <laughs> you probably have a lot of that all put together in your blogs and you just put it all together and there you go. You have a book. And yeah, so that recently. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because it all is you. It's your story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it has been such a pleasure having you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Hugh, is there anything else that you want to leave our audience with today? I think the, the comment about smiling and being a superpower is absolutely true. Um, it's not just my superpower. I think that, you know, if you can find a, a way Find some positive, be in the moment of where you are right now. Find something to be grateful for and then slap that smile on your face. Um, that can be everybody's superpower. Mm. And be gentle with yourself. <laughs> and be gentle with yourself. That That's great. Keep a smile. It's contagious. Uh, I would have to say, absolutely. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for well, your time. Again, you you're welcome. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to remind our audience that this show wouldn't be here without your generous contributions. When you donate through the wellnessdrivenlifeshow.com, 
then you can get a beautiful email follow-up for your records. So I want to thank everybody again for being here on the Wellness Driven Life Show and goodbye for now. We will see you tomorrow. Give it to me like...